Who are the main players affecting the political and military dynamics within Syria? How is the Saudi feud with Iran likely to affect the Lebanese elections? Is the popular unrest playing out in Armenia currently the latest version of a foreign-sponsored subversion comparable to the Euromaidan in Ukraine? What is behind the peace overtures between North and South Korea? Is a major conflict looming for Iran? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as the international stage is subject to a series of dramatic events with political rhetoric to match, we look into the geopolitics and geostrategy playing out and where it may be leading us. Our guest for the hour is geopolitical analyst and research associate with the Center for Research on Globalization, Mahdi Nazamroya. On this week's program, Geopolitical Rundown, Mahdi Nazamroya on Syria, Armenia, North Korea, and beyond. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 4th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Today, Mr. Netanyahu is the most dangerous man in the world, which enjoys Mr. Trump's complete support. In this regard, Mr. Pompeo, right after his confirmation as the Secretary of State, wasted no time in his first tour to line up the Arab allies for a bloody war with Iran. The U.S.-Israel have already demonstrated that they have no respect for the international laws and are dismissing all resolutions and statements that have been issued over Iran nuclear deal by the UN, EU, IAEA, or International Atomic Energy Agency, and JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, an international agreement on the nuclear program of Iran. In other words, those who are more lethal by the law of the jungle shall rule the Middle East. The last bombardments by Israeli Air Force targeting the Iranian bases in Syria, which was registered as a literal earthquake, is very alarming. That comes from the article, Netanyahu, the Dangerous Prankster, by Masoud Nayeri, posted May 2nd. Recently, YouTube announced it will flag videos it believes to communicate falsehoods and add links to Wikipedia. Yet Wikipedia, as this series will put forth, is by no means a reliable resource for objective intelligence and knowledge, which is reason enough for universities to flag it as a capricious source for responsible research. This should raise serious concerns. Wikipedia is another internet behemoth. And like the other tech giants, it is horribly compromised by biases and preferential treatment to private interest groups and extremist ideologies. 
Wikipedia's ideological biases and favoritism to communities hiring and recruiting armies of internet trolls has been responsible for ruining the reputations and tainting the careers of numerous people, notably health professionals and academics who fail to live, teach, and practice in alignment with Wikipedia's very narrow scientific criteria of what is deemed as legitimate, proven facts. That comes from the article, Wikipedia, Our New Technological McCarthyism, Part 1, by Richard Gale and Dr. Gary Null, posted May 2nd. That the U.S. has attempted to use what it calls, quote, improper foreign influence on U.S. elections and on the U.S. political system, unquote, as a pretext for attacking Russia, its media, both in Russia and its U.S.-based networks, its diplomatic mission in the United States, as well as the Russian economy through sanctions, indicates that Washington is more than aware of how inappropriate it is for one nation to attempt to interfere with or influence the internal political processes of another nation. Yet, this is precisely what the United States itself has done for decades openly around the globe. Unlike the FBI's indictment, which fails to establish any direct link with the Russian government or define any specific examples of what could be considered political interference beyond Russian-based media operations, the U.S. conducts vast efforts to interfere in the elections and political processes of nations around the globe. Through U.S. government-funded agencies like the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED, Operating on an annual budget of hundreds of millions of dollars, the U.S. controls entire opposition parties, opposition groups, and so-called activist organizations inside targeted nations. This also includes the creation and funding of media organizations, not based in the U.S. and commentating on foreign politics, but operating inside targeted nations, often concealing their foreign funding from their audiences. That comes from the article, U.S. Claims of Russian Meddling Exposes Its Own Global Meddling, by Tony Cardellucci, posted May 2nd. It never seemed likely to me that the Russians had decided to assassinate an inactive spy who they let out of prison many years ago, over something that happened in Moscow over a decade ago. It seemed even less likely when Boris Johnson claimed intelligence showed this was the result of a decade-long Novichok program involving training in secret assassination techniques. Why would they blow all that effort on old Skripal? That the motive is the connection to the hottest issue in U.S. politics today and not something in Moscow a decade ago always seemed to me much more probable, having now reviewed matters and seen that the government actively tried to shut down this line of inquiry, makes it still more probable this is right. That comes from the article, Russia Phobia and the Skripal Affair, Where They Tell You Not to Look, by Craig Murray, posted May 2nd, originally appearing at craigmurray.org. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
There have been some dramatic developments playing out on the world stage so far in 2018. There was Turkey's invasion of Afrin, then in April, a supposed chemical weapons attack in Syria by President Assad with retaliation by U.S., U.K. and France armed forces, all while the Syrian Arab army appears to be winning against the Nusra Front and allied militants, which had long held positions throughout the country. There's news of Israeli strikes against Iranians in Syria over the past weekend. And over in Asia, there were fears of nuclear escalation between the U.S. and North Korea at the beginning of the year, which have largely appeared to have diffused as a peace deal is being pursued between the two Koreas. To help us decipher some of these and other developments where th- and to see where they're likely to lead, I'm pleased to bring back Mahdi Nazamraya after about a year's absence from this uh, program. Uh, Mahdi is, of course, an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst. He's the author of The uh, Globalization of NATO. Uh, The world is uh, certainly... uh, We've seen a lot of changes since uh, Mahdi was last here, so I'm I'm pleased to bring him back. Uh, uh, So, Mahdi, thank you so much for joining us from Ottawa. Uh, great, Great to have you back on the show. Well, it's great to be back on the show. It's always nice to talk to you, Michael. Yeah, you, I should just point out, you've been uh, out in the, the Philippines for uh, like close to two years now? Uh, it's been, I think, uh, it's, more, it's longer than that, yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in uh, Southeast Asia, more or less, for uh, a period of surpassing two years. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's good to be back in Canada. And uh, I really enjoyed the late spring. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I think our, our listeners and, and our readers on the site, I, I don't think that we've seen much from you uh, there either, except maybe some uh, repostings of old articles of yours, which uh, still remain quite relevant today. So, um, But uh, it's, uh, like I say, it's great to, to have you back. It's great to be back. Uh, my apologies about that, but... Uh, <laughs> When you supervise thirty odd students doing research theses, uh, and you have courses to teach on top of that, it prevents you from doing other things. But now that I'm back in Canada and I don't have any, uh, I don't need to supervise any thesis. I don't have any uh, coursework to do. Uh, I, I'm, I my hands are a little freer. So uh, I mean, uh, you should be slowly starting to see some commentary and writing and research for me. Well, that's great. Um, so let's, uh, I mean, Syria, of course, is uh, quite, uh, it just never seems to escape the headlines for very long. Uh, I, I wanted to get your t- your sense on the, the current landscape and, and the players that are influencing it. I know, um, you know, there's been this long so-called civil war, uh, actually a foreign insurgency, um, backed by uh, U.S. Uh, NATO forces. I'm wondering where things sit now. I mean, I, I feel like we've seen a, a change in the in the game plan. If the plan was to do in Syria what uh, they did in Libya, that plan has been scrapped in favor of a plan B or a plan C. What do you see is the, 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 the geopolitical landscape of Syria right now? Well, speaking in geopolitical dimensions about uh, the Syrian Arab Republic, uh, I think that what we can see are the following uh, the following things in the environment, in the, the, the theater there, is 
there is cooperation between the Russian Federation and Iran, which support the government of uh, Dr. Bashar al-Assad. And on the other hand, uh, Turkey, which is an opponent of uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad, the legitimate government of Syria, whether you like it or not, uh, and also the popular government. So that's very important to note. We have Turkey working with Iran and Russia, and they have they all three have different interests. Russia and Iran support the Syrian government. Turkey wants to get rid of it. So that tells you something about the environment. It tells you that Turkey understands that its fate is anchored to what's going to happen in Syria, and it opposes, not in totality, but it does oppose uh, some of its uh, formal allies, including the United States and Saudi Arabia, because it sees their objectives there as counterintuitive and against what Turkey wants. They do have shared objectives. Turkey still has animosity towards the Syrian government, uh, and the Syrian government and Turkey uh, have issues between them. I think that under the table or via intermediaries such as the Russians, there is some type of dialogue going on with them because they are shared interests. So that's the first point in the landscape, that the Turks, who are American allies, realize that uh, what's going to happen in Syria has consequences on them and the stability of their uh, nation and their sovereignty. So that's one thing. The other point is that I'd like to make is that eastern Syria, specifically northeastern Syria, has a de facto American occupation to an extent. We're told that there's about 2,000 U.S. troops there. I think the numbers surpass that. I'm sure there are also contractors and other forces aligned to the United States. I'm not talking about Syrian forces. I'm talking about other outsider forces. We're also seeing the situation in Syria Increasingly, the environment, the theater in Syria, being internationalized. Uh, we've seen the Iraqi military intervene now in Syria. We have Iranian military advisors on the ground with Iranian military equipment. Same thing with uh, the Russians. Their military equipment is there on the ground. They have advisors. Their military police. They have negotiators. Uh, we have. Um, uh, from Lebanon, the Hezbollah resistance movement there. Uh, we have, uh, Iran has organized um, uh, volunteers from abroad to go there from places like Pakistan uh, and Iraq, which the news media calls Shiite militias here. Uh, I think the word Shiite militia is a very blanket statement, and there's more complexity there. In fact, some of the a lot of the militias are also local militias that the Iranians have helped organize, like the National Defense Forces, and including groups of uh, bands of, uh, of um, local patriotic militias that include Assyrians, Armenians, that are Christians. Uh, Hezbollah is also trained within Syria, including Syrians and Lebanese volunteers, uh, that um, militias that include Sunni Muslims and Christians as well. So I don't want it to be painted in sectarian terms. I want to make that point. Uh, so the situation is internationalized. We see the intervention by, by the United States, the attack, the aggression by the United States, Britain, and France, as well as Israel, who, who actually made strikes 
as well. This, this shows how internationalized the situation is, and uh, it shows that they, they want to prevent any peace process from there. They want to prevent stability, and they want to prevent the Syrian government from uh, establishing its sovereignty throughout the Syrian Arab Republic. So it's very internationalized in those terms, and the pressure is being increased the more success the Syrian Arab army has on the ground in Syria. So the, the accusations of a chemical weapons attack uh, in Duma, one of the suburbs or urban galaxies of Damascus, uh, it, it's totally fraudulent. I mean, all the evidence, even Fox News, there's all these voices on Fox News, which is very pro-Trump, uh, very pro-Republican uh, Party, very pro-intervention. They've even opposed it on Fox News, but of course that's not evidence having people <laughs> oppose it. Uh, 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 you've had various governments speak out about it. At the United Nations, there's been a lot of dishonesty on the part of the United States and its allies. They tried to prevent the um, OPCW from going on the ground. If they wanted an investigation to verify if chemical weapons were used, why would they launch an attack before? And in fact, they've also lied about the resolution. They blame the Russians, China, Bolivia, for uh, trying to uh, prevent um, uh, an investigation. They blame the Russians mostly, but China, Bolivia, Kazakhstan, Ethiopia, as well as other countries actually sided with the Russians. There's three resolutions. If you look at them, you'll see actually a large part of the international community wanted to go ahead with it. The United States and a few allies including the British and French, were the ones that blocked this. Uh, all, all while Assad, uh, the Syrian Arab army, is winning, and then they're suddenly going to use chemical weapons against civilians. It makes no sense that a, chemical weapons, number one, are used uh, in a strategic sense in, in, in a position where you are about to lose. The Syrian government, the Syrian military, would. Uh, that's why I'm saying the Syrian government military, to make it clear that this is not one individual, Number one, would never use chemical weapons in a situation where they're winning. Number two, the last U.S. administration, the Obama administration, verified that they got all the chemical weapons. In fact, a few months ago, the OPCW also verified that the... It was verified through experts that the last batch of chemical weapons stock were eliminated in Texas. They released a press statement. In Texas, they had released, because the United States took the chemical weapons stocks as well. Some were destroyed on a U.S. Navy ship. Some were taken to Texas. Uh, these chemical weapons were, um, were uh, given up, surrendered by the Syrians, part of a negotiation by the Russians to prevent a war between the United States and Syria on another false accusation based on Syria. And I want to point out that the Syrian... Arab Republic would never have kept chemical weapons if it wasn't for its neighbor, the state of Israel. The only reason those chemical weapons existed were because the Israelis have nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons of mass destruction, and the Syrians only kept chemical weapons as a deterrence against them. The, the, the partners, the, the Kurdish partners there, uh, the, the Turkish invasion of Afrin, uh, that that was coming in the, on the heels of uh, uh, alliances. Well, the, 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 this uh, border force that the United States was setting up, where the U.S. was working 
you know, basically hand in glove with the Kurds. And of course, that uh, that that whole situation played out where basically Turkey was saying, well, you're going to dance with the Kurds, then uh, you could forget about us uh, working with you. And so you had this uh, incursion in there. I- I'm wondering where this this alliance with the Kurds and, and the future, where the, the future stands there. Okay, well, I want to... I want to be clear on something. Um, when we say the Kurds, I, I think that... Uh, they're not a homogenous group. They're not homogenous, yeah. number one. All the Kurds are not part of this. And in fact, one other thing you should know is that these are not proxies, per se. There are Kurds who believe in temporary... Uh, they, they have their own agenda, and they do have temporary uh, alliances. In fact, this entire... Um, this entire last two decades, we see temporary alliances. We have pragmatism. There is pragmatism and opportunism exists. And I mean, certain people, they have a objective. They'll take whatever support they can get. But that doesn't mean they're proxies per se or they're the agents and actors of another party. So all the Kurds are not homogenous, number one. And uh, Turkey itself has its own Kurdish partners and allies, which you don't hear about. Turkey's big issue is the establishment of a antagonistic Kurdish state, which would destabilize uh, southeastern Turkey. Which is care- I'll be careful here. Southeastern Turkey is northwestern Kurdistan or Turkish Kurdistan. It doesn't want a state that will uh, that will destabilize Turkey as a sovereign state. And it believes that what's happening in Syria will eventually lead to civil strife breaking out in Turkey. You know, and a quarter of the population in Turkey are Kurds, almost. Something around the quarter of the population. You know, they've had Kurdish prime ministers before. Uh, A large part of the population in Turkey are ethnic Kurds. Uh, So it doesn't want that. It doesn't want that at all. That's its fear. And, you know, we had different statements being made by um, Rex Tillerson, former uh, Secretary of State for the United States, and General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, the, the boss, the head honcho in the Pentagon, civilian head honcho. Um, we had different statements. We had one saying we're going to set up a border force, which is, you know, that's a, that's a clear, fragment, that's a glaring uh, uh, blasphemy in terms of uh, pol- political sovereignty. You know, I use the word blasphemy, but it's a glaring, it's a glaring violation of international so- sovereignty of another state. In fact, it's against the United Nations Charter. The Americans blatantly admit that, admitted that. Uh, of course, no one. Of course, we have to ask, what is the United Nations going to do about this? And we haven't seen any action, but. Anyways, basically setting up a border force means we're setting up a new state. Mm-hmm. They have no right to do that, and that means they want to break up Syria, divide it, or, you know, the popular term, balkanize. Balkanize, yeah. No, they want to do that. And the Russians, the Iranians, uh, and other parties made very clear statements against it, including the Turks. They don't want that either. So they, this is why the, the Turks are pursuing their own agenda, and it's this we can see there inside NATO there are differences. The Germans and the Turks within NATO are not aligned to the American project. They have 
convergences, there are agreements, but they also aren't. And I mean, Turkey has moved away since the um, since the attempts to remove uh, President Erdogan from uh, as the head of Turkey. Since his party, since there was, you know, the, since the the the, the the strife that broke out in Turkey, you can see Turkey's moved back. It's looking more towards the east, towards Russia, China, Iran. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's going to give up its alliances. It still has shared objectives, economic relations with the United States and, and uh, Britain and France and so on. Uh, but the Turks have their own interests, and they don't want Syria balkanized. Mm. Well. Well, talk about the the, the greater Israel plan. Uh, that because I, I very much that you're seeing a, a sort of an Israel a long-standing uh, conflict between Israel and Iran, and of course the you have Lebanon has also been uh, you know strategically uh, you know something of a football in that whole like there's that sort of the, that Iranian Lebanon. Axis, which Israel seems to be uh, breaking up. I mean, we're, 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 as, as things look right now, again, geopolitically, geostrategically, where where are we? What where are we seeing Israel? And and I guess by extension, the, the United States um, impacted by current developments. I mean, who who's on the well, winning I mean, side of this uh, <laughs> scenario? Well, first of all, uh, elections are coming up. Parliamentary elections are coming up in Lebanon. Uh, they, the alliance, the political parties uh, led by Hezbollah, which is Arabic for the Party of God, it's a theocratic party. It means that the party's politics are religiously oriented towards the Shiite form of Islam. They're, it's Muslim, and it's theocratic in terms of it believes that religion and state and mosque can mix. Uh, all its allies are not theocratic, like you have another primarily Shiite party called the Amal Movement, Harakat Amal, the Amal Movement. And then you have uh, you have uh, Michel Aoun, that's the president of Lebanon. You have his party, the Free Patriotic Movement. It's the biggest, it's secular. Uh, it's the biggest uh, party amongst the Christians in Lebanon. So these parties are oriented towards Iran. Amongst them, there are Daruz, some small Daruz factions. That's another sect. In Lebanon, under the constitution, and, uh, under the parliament, the Daruz are considered a uh, confession of Muslim, but uh, largely outside of, outside of that legalistic definition, they're not considered Muslims by many. But anyways, you have Daruz, you have various types of uh, Christian parties, whether they're Maronite Catholics or Eastern Orthodox parties or uh, other denominations. These groups have all more or less uh, aligned to Iran. And um, uh, under Hezbollah as the most powerful, and uh, Amal and the Free uh, Patriotic Movement, they are going to probably get an advantage in this election. Now, the Saudis in the United States don't want this. Uh, there's been backdoor agreements to try as much as possible to not involve Lebanon in this. And I think the Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, who, by the way, was a hostage in Saudi Arabia a while back, uh, and the reason for that is because uh, the, the, the internal Saudi politics amongst the royals in Saudi Arabia, but also it was linked to Iran, and I think that's a bad move, because what it did is, for the Saudis, 
bad move. It's good for the Iranians and Hezbollah. Is it? It created. It created friction and animosity amongst some members of the Sunni population in Lebanon that more or less have uh, pro-Saudi sentiments, especially within the future movement, which is Saad Hariri's political party. Uh, so the, the, this has created problems for them. The Saudis have wanted to get back at Iran, uh, to fight Iran through Lebanon, the Saudis. And I think that them and the Israelis talk about that. In fact, we know that the Saudis pushed the Israelis to attack Lebanon, topple it, and to try to destroy the capabilities of Hezbollah because it's aligned to Iran and to Syria and to an extent to the Russians. Um, so the Saudis wanted to get back at the Iranians by fighting in Lebanon, you know, because they don't like the support that Iran gives to uh, Ansarullah, uh, the, 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 the Ansarullah is the party of uh, God, also, well, the helpers of God, or the army of God, you can say, in Yemen, that's Arabic for that. Uh, they're called the Houthis in English. So Iran supports the Houthis, not just the Houthis, also the other political forces, which are Sunni, Muslim, as well, uh, mixed, it's mixed, secular, theocratic, Sunni, Shiite, Zaidi Shiites, to be specific, in Yemen, are in a fight, in a war with Saudi Arabia. And you can see, Saudi Arabia has failed in Yemen. And what it wants to do is, and what the United States is doing, and even Israel and Britain, is they are arming Saudi Arabia, and they're pushing Saudi Arabia to create an Arab front against Iran. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Okay, so... Mahdi, I'd, I'd like to maybe switch gears and, and talk about Armenia now, because there's been some very dramatic developments taking place there. Is this a colored revolution, or is there is this a genuine uh, popular unrest against a corrupt government? There are a number of interests at stake here, so maybe I just get in, give you an opportunity to sound off on what you see is going on there, what's playing out. Okay, well, the leader of the, the so-called leader of the Protests now. Number one, the protests in Armenia, uh, which have taken place in all the major cities. Uh, uh, those protests are large. That uh, they, in relative, uh, in uh, relatively speaking, in terms of Armenia's population, uh, they forced um, the former prime minister uh, Sergei um, uh, Sagzayan, Sergei Sagzayan. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Sagzayan to step down. It's important to note that he was Prime Minister. A month didn't even pass, but he was president before that. He was president of Armenia uh, uh, um, for a few years, served two terms. Uh, and he's from the, his party is the um, Republican Party of Armenia. And uh, before he was president, 
was also prime minister and before that defense minister and interior minister. So he has a security background. Uh, and there was a continuation. This is a this man is a uh, the prime minister who stepped down has been a key pillar of Armenian the Armenian uh, political landscape for a long time. Uh, yes, there is corruption in Armenia, just like there is here in Canada and elsewhere. Of course, corruption has varying degrees and varying dimensions. Uh, there is legitimate uh, reasons for people in Armenia to be upset, but. There are also opportunists who take advantage of legitimate grievances, and we see that all over the world. Those are the whisperers who whisper, and, you know, they have their own motivation. And we can see that working in Armenia for months now, for months, for months. It's been over half a year in the United States. It's been over half a year. It's between a year to half a year. They have been talking about doing something about Armenia. There's op-heads from, like, the Hill, the like, the... The intelligentsia, the media in the United States are talking about Armenia. Why? One, Armenia is an important ally of the Russian Federation and Iran. And in fact, if you read the literature on the security and geopolitical landscape of the South Caucasus and as well as the broader Caucasus, you will see talk about what is called the Moscow-Yerevan-Tehran Access. It's an alliance between Iran, Armenia, and Russia. And one of the things that the United States, these people in the United States have been talking about is removing Armenia from this alliance and bringing it into the Euro-Atlantic orbit or the orbit of the United States and the European Union, which includes NATO and all these transatlantic institutions. Transatlantic meaning basically Western Europe, United States, and Canada. So, uh, yes, there is wishful thinking. There is support for what's happening there. The, the political heads of this opposition, number one, don't even have a majority in parliament, the Armenian National Assembly. They don't have a majority. They don't even have a quarter of the seats. In fact, the, the Republican Party, the Armenian Republican Party, holds most of the seats. A parliamentary vote's going to take place, but all the members of parliament for the Armenian, um, the Republican Party of Armenia, if they, if, they, uh, if they vote for their candidate, a member of parliament, since it's the parliamentary system, they can pick whoever's the next prime minister. You know, so... Yes, the kingmaker, the basically. Yeah, but the Republican Party, which is the prime minister's party, uh, who stepped down, can also easily... They, they have... Out of 105 seats, you can do the math, out of 105 seats, they have 58. One of, their par- one of the other parties there, um, the Armenian Revolutionary Party, which also has a branch in Lebanon, which is aligned to Hezbollah, by the way, uh, that's also going to be having elections in Lebanon, the, the Armenian Revolutionary Party. Uh, they, in the National Assembly of Armenia, in the capital Yerevan, they hold 58 seats out of 105. 58 seats, even when their coalition partner left the, because, of the, uh, because of the political sentiments in Yerevan and the rest of Armenia left, left, uh, left their coalition, so they're by themselves. Even by themselves, they can pick the next prime minister. Now, I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, elections are said. They're talking about having elections after the parliamentary vote. But the man who wants to be the 
prime minister of Armenia, um, his party, it only holds nine seats. Yeah. Nine seats. This yeah. man wants to be... There's some questions that have to be asked. Can a man that holds nine seats and the other opposition parties uh, together have uh, 38 seats, can they basically decide the future of Armenia uh, and what direction it goes to? And this is a man who comes from a party that on the record has been uh, antagonistic towards Russia and Iran. Uh, he wants Armenia to leave what is called the Eurasian, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, which is uh, an equivalent, I guess, to the European Union in Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and Asia. The Eurasian Economic Union is, consists of Belarus, Armenia, and Kazakhstan, which founded it. It also includes Kyrgyzstan and, uh, and Armenia, who later joined. Uh, Tajikistan is also a candidate. Uh, there was talk about Serbia possibly joining it, Mongolia, there's talk about Mongolia joining it. Iran just recently signed an agreement with it. You know, Vietnam was one of the first uh, uh, countries to sign some type of agreement. Egypt is in negotiations. Israel even talked to it. Syria is interested. Uh, before, there was coups, parliamentary or political coups, I guess, in Brazil and Argentina. They were interested about trade talks with this with this. Uh, with this political and economic pole called the Eurasian Economic Union. So the man who, um, who uh, wants to head the next government in Armenia, he's very antagonistic towards uh, the, the geopolitical position of, and traditional position of post-Soviet Armenia. Okay. I, I am just kind of interested in, in probing the, the, the differences and the similarities between what hap- what was a hap- going on in Ukraine, where there was that popular expression of opposition with the, uh, with, with the president, uh, Yanukovych. And I'm, I'm wondering if we aren't seeing something similar happening here or if this is uh, um, a yeah. completely different phenomenon. Well, from what I know, that I, there hasn't been uh, an outwardly, uh, uh, there hasn't been outwardly positive support of the president yet. But this has also caught the Republican Party and the government of Armenia by surprise. And I would let you know that this isn't the first protest. A few years ago, there was also a similar protest. The Russians were also a little anxious about it. Uh, you know, they thought this was another Euromaidan, just like in Ukraine. And you know. In their neighborhood, these former Soviet states, which all comprise the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, there has been color revolutions. You know, Georgia mm-hmm. had the Rose Revolution. You had uh, before in Ukraine. You had the Tulip, uh, the the Orange Revolution. You had the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. You know, and even outside of the CIS or post-Soviet space in Serbia, you had the Tractor Revolution. Uh, so there is, they, they have seen these color revolutions going on. You had the, the Twitter revolution in Moldova. Um, in fact, the president of Moldova, the head of state, he has a government that's working against his orders, his legitimate orders, that's more or less aligned to Washington. Like, I mean, all these problems exist. So in Armenia, I would not count it as Euromaidan. And in fact, the man who's supposedly the head of these protests, uh, Nikol Pashinyan, who's a member of the National Assembly, he's a parliamentarian, he's talked to Russian 
delegations, and he says, look, this isn't a Euromaidan. Armenia will not leave uh, the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, again, and a lo- it's, it's the Eurasian Economic Union is a counterpart to the European Union. Members, again, are Belarus, Kazakhstan, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, and Armenia. And he also said that we will not leave our traditional security and military alliance and ties with Russia. So Armenia has Russian bases near the borders with uh, uh, Turkey and the Republic of Azerbaijan. Uh, it has two bases. Um, there's also uh, a joint unit that's being established between Armenia and the Russians. Uh, Armenia also is friendly towards Syria, and it's, an, it's aligned to Iran. In fact, when Turkey and the Republic of Azerbaijan were antagonistic towards Armenia and there was a war going on, it was the Iranians that supported uh, the Armenians. So they have this alliance with Iran. Uh, um, this gentleman, again, so Mr. Pashinyan, who leads the so-called protests in the streets, uh, he's confirmed that he has said we will not leave the Eurasian Economic Union, as well as the uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically a Russian counterpart to NATO. It includes Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and previously it included Uzbekistan, Georgia, and Azerbaijan before they uh, withdrew. Hmm. So those are his statements, but the Russians are watching this. And in fact, some statements by Russia have changed. I've, watched, I've been following the position of the Kremlin and the Russian foreign ministry, and, uh, you know, they are, there are some concerns because, like I said, there are legitimate grievances, but there are also people who take advantage of these things for their own geopolitical and economic motives. So, I mean, the Americans wishfully want to remove Armenia from its alliance with Russia and Iran. And in fact, it's always been very important to the Americans. They've always talked about what do we do about Armenia. If we want to put sanctions, what do we do? Because Armenia has never been part of any sanction regime against Iran. It would be economic suicide for Armenia. So they've never joined any, because Iran is one of its major trading partners. It relies on Iran for energy. And uh, the only borders, really, that aside from the Georgian border, that goods come in from are, are from Iran. So uh, that's important to the Azerbaijan, uh, not Azerbaijanis, the Armenians. And this has been an issue, like, how do we, how do we uh, go after Iran, also weaken Russia? One of the things that, they, that the U.S. has looked at is regime change in Armenia in one way or another, either by hook or crook, you know, so uh, that's an issue. Hmm. As well as, uh, I would say, the other things we're seeing in the region. So the war in Syria. The hmm. war in Syria... The fighting in Syria increasingly is about Iran. Look at Donald Trump's statement. Uh, everywhere we go in the Middle East, it's Iran, Iran, Iran. All we hear about is Tehran. Uh, you know, in Yemen, in Bahrain, it controls Lebanon, it controls Syria, and it controls Iraq. First of all, the Iraqi and Syrian governments invited Iran over. The issues in Bahrain are peaceful protesters. They don't have weapons. They're the majority of the country. There's no democracy. Like, these are the type of things you're, you're hearing. Netanyahu keeps on saying Iran is gobbling the country's building an empire uh, in the region, you know. Uh, so you're hearing this propaganda, and, but at the same time you're, hearing, uh, you're seeing the steps being taken. 
aggressive mm-hmm. steps being taken, uh, not only against Iran, but also against Russia. Because at the end of the day, Iran is just a, 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 another phase or another step in the roadmap. It's an independent country. It's an independent player in the in the region. That's it's crime. It is, but not only that, if the Americans want to control Eurasian space, they need to also eliminate the two so-called now they're calling them revisionist powers. You know, the war on terror has morphed now. The biggest threat to the United States is no longer terrorism, according to U.S. policy. It's revisionist powers. That means Russia and China. In fact, the truth is that those were the biggest, not threats in military terms to the United States, the biggest economic threats to American control, cultural threats to American control. So these aren't real threats because they're dangerous countries. They're threats because they're alternatives. I'm not talking as... uh, Like Cuba uh, or Venezuela? Sure, but those those are countries that are independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two, two countries that on a global stage can challenge the United States are Russia and China. Mm. So, I mean, the targets of this war on terrorism have, of course, been independent countries, and the targets of U.S. foreign policy are independent countries, because that's what empire building is about, getting rid of independent countries so you can expand your empire. Well, it's not just a single alternative. It's several op- alternatives that are aligning with each other, Russia, you know, Iran, China. Well, these countries have different systems, for sure, um, in one way or another. I mean, China and the Russians, I would say, are capitalist countries. So is Iran. Um, but they're political alternatives, the American leadership, forced leadership on the rest of the world. That's why they're threats. Uh, but we can now see that the war on terror was really about excuses to go into other countries on the roadmap towards challenging Russia and China. I think I'd like to kind of wind up the show by by focusing more on Korea, this change in direction um, where where the public might think, well, Trump's fire and fury uh, rhetoric is, uh, you know, had something to do with it, and he may be up for a Nobel Prize. But there's there, there's more going on behind the scenes, and this isn't uh, you know this isn't really the the dramatic change uh, that a lot of people are are witnessing. Would I be correct about that? I would say first of all, this is a different note, but I want to start with this with this uh, with this observation and note that the Nobel Peace Prize is worthless. I'm sorry to True. say, there are very good people in the history of that award who deserved it and got it, but it's been reduced to a political farce. You know, war criminals have received this peace prize. This, in U.S. policy, don't look at everything as isolated steps. Other parts of the world are considered. I think the Americans are going to do this when, as, as, uh, as, uh, as a counterstep withdrawing from the Iran deal or from violating the Iran deal. If they don't withdraw, but I think they're going to withdraw. But this is a counter step. They're upping the ante against Tehran. So instead, they're lowering the temperature with Pyongyang. So one front becomes quiet while the other front is opened up. And in the bigger picture, uh, 
in the immediate picture, Iran and the Middle East are much more important to them than Northeast Asia and the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that Pyongyang, uh, its position has always been what we see. Its position, I'm speaking as someone who's been to North Korea, as someone who's been to the demilitarized zone from the North Korean side, as someone who's been to South Korea as well, and someone who's been to security conferences uh, about the Korean Peninsula with people from uh, with experts and, and people that have been involved, officials from places like Russia and China and the United States and North Korea and South Korea. I've been, like in Berlin a few years ago, for example. Um, so someone who's been there and who knows about uh uh, I'm not calling myself an expert on North Korea, but from someone who is knowledgeable to an extent, I can tell you that the official position of the North Koreans, of Pyongyang, and uh, the Workers' Party there, has always been to uh, to unite Korea, to push for a federal system, a federal system, where they can retain their uh, economic model and their gov- form of governance. Uh, and it's always been for peace. You know, in, Korea, in North Korea, the memories of the Korean War, the liberation struggle against the Japanese military, this is a part of the culture. It's not like South Korea where they've moved on. And South so, Korea, they've also had, they've had a change, uh, changes in administration. So they had a really conservative uh, prime minister there. And then... Uh, now with Moon Jae-in, uh, they have a much more congenial attitude toward uh, yeah, the North. I, I have to say something. Like, uh, you have to be careful uh, about outward attitudes and outward appearances. At the end of the day, uh, an outward appearance is popular in Korea. A peacefully outward and consolatory appearance is popular in Korea. But uh, you have to take into consideration other, uh, other forces. Okay. Uh, so that that's one thing. Don't don't just look at the talk. Look at the walk. I, I think the United States has been key in this, and so has China. You know, the leader of North Korea, first place he went to before this was China. He saw the the president of China in Beijing, uh, and the Chinese have been involved in this as well. Of course, they want peace. You know, they don't want saber rattling, but uh, the Americans also want want this. But everybody's motives is different. Why do the Chinese want peace? Why do the North Koreans want peace? Why do the South Koreans want peace? And why do the Americans, why does Washington, D.C. want peace? Those are different reasons. They're not the exact same. Everybody leverages that to themselves. Now, the North Koreans, their, their attitude has always been a defensive one. Uh, any, any talks of, from them, belligerent talk from them, has always been in defense. They really do take uh, the American military presence in South Korea and Japan very seriously. You know, they, they don't, but uh, they do want unity. Like, the hopes of unifying, I've been, like I said, I've been to North Korea and South Korea. The hopes of unifying North Korea and South Korea are very strong in North Korea. Much, I mean, they're strong, there are people in South Korea as well, but much stronger in North Korea. It's part of the popular culture. It's like a dream. It's like movies are made about it. <laughs> it's really ingrained in people's memories, just like how if you go to the former Soviet Union, Russia, uh, World War II, 
or the Great Patriotic Wars, they call it, is so sacred for them, you know, because they lost millions of people. I mean, uh, with all due respect to us here in Canada, the United States, we lost nothing compared to them. Their entire country was devastated. Millions of people were killed. They did the most fighting against the Nazis and their allies in Europe. Like, this was really sacred to them, the, the Second World War. I'm not trying to diminish any accomplishments on the part of our veterans here, but it was, it's really like so much music about the Second World War. It's so important for them in, in Russia. Uh, and same thing in Korea, about the Korean War and unifying Korea. So it's part of their culture. So there's no charm offensive by the North Koreans in terms of unity. They've always pushed for this. They've, they've always had uh, the position that you're seeing now, what's happening, is something North Korea would have done years ago if it was allowed to. But previous administrations in the Blue House in, in Seoul and the White House were not in the United States were not supportive of this. Mm. Interesting. So I, I wonder what that takes us uh, in terms of, of looking forward. I mean, it, it sounds like Iran, at least from what I've heard from you, that uh, I- Iran is a, is a huge uh, element in, in all of this. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe the uh, the focus is less and less on Korea and, and more and more on Iran. I mean, do you see some sort of uh, <clears throat> military conflict, uh, you know, perhaps uh, instigated by Israel uh, cropping I, up in the next year or so? I can, I can see some type of confrontation. But the thing is that nobody knows what would happen if that confrontation breaks out. The Israelis will not go into a conflict unless they are sure about the outcome. The out, they will not take on a military confrontation unless they're sure about the outcome. Even the United States uh, is careful about this. Remember, Trump was talking about attacking Syria within days, and then you heard the Russians talk about retaliation. Then you also, at the same time, you, hear, you see the Chinese um, mobilizing their military. Uh, at the same time, and, and, and just before that, the Chinese defense minister, his, his first trip when taking office, uh, the Chinese defense minister, who's also general, went to Moscow, and he said this is a message to the United States, that the Chinese uh, people and military stand with the Russian people and military. We will support Russia against the United States. And also, these type of statements and these gestures, as, as well as, the Russian, uh, whether the Russian threat to counterstrike, which was made by Russian military officials, Russian politicians, the Russian ambassador to Lebanon, um, these statements made the United States, Britain, and France wait. They didn't attack. In fact, Trump even, you know, he made those famous tweets, our new missiles are coming, and then he said, oh, I didn't say when, and they, they, they paused. They paused. Everybody knows they paused. And at the end of the day, they, they, they did these strikes, which were limited. They didn't go full out, and what they did do even was, uh, I would say, it was part of a face-saving gesture, and they even deliberately, according to General Mattis, the head of the Pentagon, they didn't target sites where there's Iranians or Russians deliberately. You know, even the Trump's message when he struck Syria was, you know, we want to, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was more peaceful, it was less aggressive than before towards Russia and Iran. He addressed both of them. You know, he said, maybe we can be friends with Russia, maybe even Iran, but then maybe not. Um, so the statements, the United States even thinks about conflict. And I, I know for a fact that the Israelis will not go into a conflict. What I do see is that their media is, like, really pumping out a lot of uh, uh, 
you know, war rhetoric and uh, mixed signals. You know, they, 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 they've tried to say that they've had secret meetings with Iran. I don't know. I can't make a statement about that vis-a-vis the Russians, you know, because there was a, a security meeting. I think over 80 delegations from around the world, national security councils were there. It was in Sochi again in southern Russia. There was a report that the head of the Supreme Security Council of Iran, which is an admiral, a rear admiral, and the deputy head of the Israeli National Security Council might have met. And I would point out, since I'm talking about this, even in Israel, legislation has just been passed in the Knesset, in the basic law, which is the Israeli constitution, which now allows two ministers to declare war. So the Israeli minister of defense, or aggression, uh, and um, prime minister, the prime minister of Israel, so Mr. Netanyahu, uh, you know, before, that's that's startling because in Israel, before they had to be talks, they had to go to parliament and cabinet, and uh, the law has been changed. Uh, so Israel is rattling the situation, and I think that uh, you see Israeli and American interests again uh, coming together, and uh, and I and I do see not just Israel is being used for conflict with Iran, but Saudi Arabia. Look at the language from Saudi Arabia; it's all geared towards Iran. Mm-hmm. From all you hear from Saudi Arabia and Israel is that Iran is a threat. And I want to turn the knob or turn our attention to domestic issues. Look, in Israel, the prime minister and his party, there's also a lot of allegations of corruption, probes. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, there's internal fighting amongst the despots, the House of Saud, you know. Billions of dollars were appropriated from other rich Saudis, uh, you know internal coup, palace plots, uh, all this stuff is, is, is also diverting internal attention away towards Iran uh, from things that are happening. You know, nobody's now talking about Duma anymore as well. Yeah. Uh, so th- a lot of stuff in Syria is not just about Syria. It's about a broader, broader issues in the Middle East and the whole world. But yeah. Don't well, forget the Russians are there, the Chinese card is there. Uh, but uh, but what's important is what comes after Syria. And I think that the country that you're going to see, um, that you're seeing increasing tensions with is in Iran, and it's part of that same roadmap of uh, aggression and rivalry between the United States and China and Russia. So, I mean, Iran is just, this is happening because they're also going to turn up the heat against the Russians and the Chinese. Well, Mahdi, I, I wish we had more time, but uh, I think maybe we can even continue this discussion at a later date. Uh, um, thank you so much, my friend, for uh, joining us on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, uh, and thank you to uh, your uh, audience as well, and it's it's good to be back on your show. <laughs> We've been speaking with Mahdi Darius Nazamroya, sociologist and award-winning author uh, and research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization. He joined us from Ottawa. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.